Once again, to the Capital Weekly podcast, I am Capital Weekly editor in chief Rich Eisen, uh, joined as always by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. Tim, how are you doing this fine day? I'm well, Rich. Thanks. Great. And we're also joined by another longtime friend of the show, a regular contributor to the Capital Weekly site as well. Uh, in fact, he's here today to talk with us about uh, a piece we just were able to get up today. Uh, talking about the Latino and Asian voting population here in California and some interesting changes therein. Uh, Paul Mitchell, how are you doing today, Paul? Doing great. Well, fabulous. It's uh, it's always great to have you on the show. And uh, really interesting piece, as I noted in my little brief intro there that you uh, that you sent us today. Uh, I, I'm, it's fascinating because I think anyone that watches the demographics in California uh, we've been seeing some interesting changes for a long time coming in uh, with both the Latino population and the Asian population. Um, you have some really interesting findings on those two populations as they uh, as it relates, I guess, to voting uh, registrations, et cetera. Uh, tell us, give us give us the four one one. What's going on here? Yeah, this is something I was playing around with for a while, and I. Um you know, have looked at it in a bunch of different ways. Um, on the CA120 Twitter account, I had actually, for the last few days, been like posting different pieces of data and how it looks. Because oftentimes when you dive into this, the perspective that you have going into it and the way you look at it can kind of expose different potential lessons. And so been looking at this a lot of different ways, but we know nationally, there's a lot of talk about, oh, Latinos are getting more Republican. And then you look in California and uh, there have been a lot of folks focusing on the Asian community and saying that the Asian community is getting more democratic. So I wanted to kind of look at both of those things. And um, what we found and what we talk about in this article is that, you know, yeah, Latinos who have registered in the last couple of years have been registering at a rate that is about 10 points more Republican, meaning Republican over Democrat, Democrat over Republican, that divide between those two parties. And that doesn't mean that they're more Republican than Democrat. It just means that the gap is closed by 10 points. They're still more Democratic. And so let's be clear, it's not like they've crossed the, the divide to where they're registering Republican majority. They're registering Republican at a larger number than they used to. Um, and it's having small shifts in the total partisan breakdown for Latinos. And then for Asians, we're seeing about the opposite. So they're registering the last couple of years about four points more Democratic, uh, three points more Democratic, something in that area, depending on where you look in the state. And then within the Asian population, there's some other more interesting things to look at, like in particular, Vietnamese voters, Vietnamese voters in Orange County, We'd actually seen this years back that the biggest gulf between like the foreign born and second, third, fourth generation voters was among Vietnamese voters, where the foreign born older Vietnamese voters are very conservative, very Republican. Going back 20 years, they were running at about 65 percent Republican. The younger, more progressive second, third generation Vietnamese voters are very Democratic. And that is one of the things we saw years ago that helped contribute to the shift in partisanship in Orange County. 
is that safe Republican base of Vietnamese voters, all those younger voters being more progressive. So a lot to unpack here. Um, I think it would be a mistake not to mention that Mike Madrid, who is, you know, uh, been working on these kind of issues is particularly looking at Latino registration and participation in Latino attitudes for decades, um, is coming out with a book on, uh, you know, kind of California national politics and some of these demographic trends. So we'll all be looking forward to seeing what he has to say about this subject. But this was just kind of my little foray into uh, talking about something that we've heard a lot of people ask questions about lately. Well, and that's been something that has been Mike Madrid's sort of mantra is that the Democrats cannot take the Latino population for granted in any way, shape or form, because they are uh, moving in many cases to the right. And that's something that he's been seeing and talking about pretty much as long as I've known him for years and years and years. Yeah, I mean, he was talking about it when it wasn't happening. And now it's kind of happening a little <laughs> bit. And so like he's still talking about it. But I mean, love Mikey. But, uh, um, you know, this was what was the his undergraduate thesis at Georgetown University uh, back in the mid 90s when he, Dustin and I were all back in DC uh, was on this subject. And uh, so he definitely has been thinking about this for a long, 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 long time. So as we get word on that book being released, I think you guys should have him on and really dive into it with him. And that's uh, for, for the people who are not paying close attention to your biography. That's Dustin Corcoran of the CMA, correct? Yeah, Dustin Corcoran, me, Scott Lay, and Mike Madrid were all part of the old crew back in the 90s. Uh, Paul, so is there any indication in what you're looking at as to any driving forces on these demographic changes or these registration changes, I should say, or is that a bridge too far from what you're what you're doing with this analysis? Yeah, so... I can't divine from the voter file the attitudinal reasons for these shifts. Um, we can look at some of the mechanical factors, like there was a big spike in independent registrations in the you know in 2018 because of the way the DMV changed their registration process. And since 2019, there's been a big shift to more partisan registration um, because of the way again that they have you select parties when you register the DMV. So those kind of mechanical things we can look at, but kind of determining whether or not this is because of abortion or taxes or COVID or who knows what it's that that stuff's outside of my realm and something that a pollster would probably look at more. Well, speaking and, of polling, you do a lot of polling uh, for us or with us, I should yeah. say. And are you uh, are you doing anything right now? Or are you looking at doing anything? I mean, we've got a we've got a primary coming up, so I'm wondering if you. Got your little elves busily sending out millions of emails. Yeah, so the elves are going to be working. We're going to do some tracking emails as people uh, return their ballots in uh, February to try to get um, some sample in to try to understand the electorate that's participating. And and that's going to be really, really, really interesting. Like we'll be asking voters, um, particularly Republican voters, uh, you know, uh, what was the driving force in them wanting to return a ballot? Um, it'll be very interesting to see how this primary shapes up, because unlike other elections in California, uh, the way that voters perceive this election is going to be very determined by things that happen in little states that most Californians can't even find on a map. I mean, what happens in New Hampshire in 
10 days or so probably will have a big impact on something else we were talking about earlier about Steve Garvey making the runoff or about, you know, who turns out in this election. So it's going to be really interesting. And we'll do some polling on that as it gets to when people are returning their ballots. You know, I want to ask you about the ballots, too, along those lines, because two things, actually, I want to make sure we don't uh-huh. leave the dust here. One is you mentioned independence, and I'm, I'm curious how these changes you're seeing with Latinos and Asians, uh, Democrat, Republican, how does this all play into the, this, the ongoing changes we've seen in independent registrations as well? Is it in line with changes we've seen there, or is there an outlier there somewhere? So we're seeing in this period, um, you know, Latinos getting more independent um, and the new registrations being, uh, you know, more of that NPP or other minor minor parties. And uh, but overall, it the independent thing has been so massively affected by the mechanical parts, the ways people register. Um, And so I think there's really more work that would have to be done to try to unpack that. Um, We had seen for years and years and years that young people were registering more as independents than as Democrats or Republicans. Um, But again, you know, we've got the way people register. And also, as we go into an even number presidential year in particular, we generally see an increase in partisan registration just from those, you know, People are thinking about things that way. If you want to register, if you want to vote in the Republican primary for president, you have to be registered Republican. And you a know, lot of voters they, think that for Democrats, too. Can you talk about that a little bit? You wrote a, an article for us a little bit about people who are going to be surprised when they get their ballot and their their preferred candidate might not be on there because they're not appropriately registered. And, you know, depending on the way the parties have it set up, whether it's an open primary, closed primary Uh, Can you talk about that and what people might expect? Yeah. So this is something that, um, you know, we have been, it's almost like we've been trying to confuse voters for a decade or more. Um, We have so many different election systems. We have, you know, the primary, traditional primary, we have open primaries. We have the blanket primary. We have where, you know, it's the top two. We have races where you only vote for you know, you vote for two city council members and other ones where you vote by district for a school board. And and then in some parts of the state, you have ranked choice voting and, you know, all these other potential election systems. And uh, every four years, we have this one election where if you're not registered as a Republican, you cannot vote for any of the Republicans. To be clear, that's the choice of the California Republican Party. They have decided that this is not something that Californians have figured out, something the Republicans in California <laughs> said the way we want to do it. Yeah. And the Democrats in California have decided you can vote for a Democratic candidate uh, if you're an independent or registered to a party that doesn't have presidential primary like Reform Party or something like that. Um, But even the Democrats don't make it a truly open process. You have to actually request that Democratic ballot. So you're going to have, you know, a quarter million Republic, former Republicans, people who voted in Republican primaries in the past few elections, get a ballot mailed to them uh, next month. And when they open that up, there will be no presidential race on that ballot because they're right now registered as independent, whether they think they're Republican or not. Uh, they're registered as independent. They won't they would have to re-register to get mailed a replacement ballot with those Republican candidates on it. So that's a big hassle. 
for Democrats, if you're an independent, uh, but you're wanting to vote in the Democratic primary, not that there really is one, but if you wanted to, you could request a Democratic ballot and then you would get that ability to vote in the Democratic presidential primary. But um, they both are in a slightly different version of a closed system. And uh, there's implications for other races here too. So if you are, let's just use Steve Garvey because he's a fun one to talk about right now. If you're Steve Garvey, you want those Republicans to vote. If those Republicans get their ballot and there's no presidential race on the ticket, they're going to throw that ballot away, scream voter fraud and not know how to fix it. So if you're Steve Garvey's campaign, you might be reaching out to everybody who's ever voted in a Republican primary that's a Demo that's currently an independent and urge them to re-register as a Republican right now so that they'll get those Republican ballots for the presidential race and be more likely, likely to turn out and more likely to vote for you. So there's a lot of these, again, mechanical issues with regard to voting that will have substantive impacts, not just on the presidential race, but on who turns out and how that affects other races. How much of this is on the parties to clarify with their voters and how much of it is on the secretary of state's office to do it? Well, and the county registrars, um, it is it, it is unfortunate that the Republican Party in this instance, you're talking about them having a truly closed system or the Democratic Party having this quasi closed system with the you know, application to vote in the presidential primary. They've created a structure that, quote unquote, works for them, but they have no responsibility to the you know, the voter that's going to call the county registrar and complain that they got mailed the wrong ballot. They have no kind of skin in the game, essentially, with regards to the long term effects that this has on county registrars and the secretary of state's office with regard to their reputation among voters when the voters get confused and frustrated and angry. And uh, because of that, you see a lot of counties and the state doing work to try to kind of explain this to voters. Most voters who are uh, independents would have gotten a mailer saying like, hey, if you want to register Republican, you need to if you want to get the Republican ballot, you need to register Republican. If you want the Democratic ballot, you have to request it. Um, but uh, that's millions of dollars that the states spend. It's a lot of resources from the counties and not really that effective either when you're just mailing a postcard to, you know, millions of voters. Uh, there will be a lot of confusion, a lot of upset voters and, you know, the Republican Party and Democratic parties don't pay the price necessarily for that frustration the voters have. Now, what's interesting is that's sort of a uh, an effect of getting rid of polling places. I know our old editor, John Howard, this was one of his things that he would complain about it every few years is that he loved going to the polling place. He, I've been a registered, uh, you know, mail-in voter for years because I find I find it kind of a pain in the ass to go find my polling place and go down there. John loved that experience. He he looked forward to it. And then, you know, when they went to mail-in voting, he really, you know, it's not the same to just go drop your poll, I mean, your ballot in the mailbox. And if you were going to a polling station in the old days, you know, 40 years ago, and you said, hey, I want to change my ballot, you could ask for that Democratic ballot right there in instantly. And if you had a question, hey, why is Donald Trump not on my my ballot here? They could tell you, oh, well, you're a registered independent. Um, you know, but so you couldn't change it. 
Right. But at least you could understand it. Whereas now they're with this mail-in voting program, it's maybe a little more confusing. I'm going to imagine that that confusion is probably exacerbated by people who are uh, English as a second language who may not be quite as familiar with the the documentation they get. So I could see how this could be very confusing. Yeah. And, and especially uh, for people who are maybe not 100% on board with mail-in voting in the first place, like John Howard. Yeah. And for younger voters, I kind of mailing is a second language. It's not native for them to be doing stuff in the mail. And yeah, it will create confusion. Um, and it does create an opportunity for the voter fraud conspiracy theorists to go off the hook when one day they tweet like, oh, they're trying to stop me from being able to vote for Donald Trump because he's not on my ballot. And then when they figure out to request the Republic, you know, re-register Republican, they get mailed a new ballot and they're like, oh, look, it's voter fraud. I have two ballots like the the, you know, you're giving of, their talking points here, Paul. Yeah, I know. But they're not listening to this podcast, I don't think. Um, but that's you know, that's unfortunate. But that's the kind of stuff that we, uh, you know, have to deal with in this a little bit lunacy of the closed primary system. I I think what the we should have in California is just all the presidential candidates are on one ballot. And if the parties don't want to count uh, the delegates from California, then go for it. Don't count them. But I mean, at least we would have a system that worked for voters better. Well, it would seem to be advantageous too. you know what I mean, what this says to me in a lot of ways is when you when and, and I don't know how much of this is the responsibility of of people who put together a curriculum. But I remember as a young person learning civics in sometimes great detail, which maybe I'm really giving away my age here more than anything. But, you know, it doesn't seem like we teach civics very well at all uh, in our school system anymore. And if you're a teacher and you, it's different in your school, please do not send me nasty emails. I'm sorry. I'm speaking in general terms here. But I will just because because people complain about this all the time, too. So um, this would seem to be the kind of thing that we would, you know, maybe there would be an advantage to to, you know, teaching kids coming up how the system works now. Again, yeah, maybe that's a too big of an ask for. Our, yeah, but there's also a challenge. It's not just kids, because right now there are lawyers who make more money than all three of us put together, arguing that the vice president has the ability to throw out the certification of the election. So, yeah, well, there, so that, there are lots of problems with our. Uh, with there's our also, standard. I mean, it's one thing I, I do agree. You know, having good civics education and having young people engage and all that in high school and have that experience learning is really powerful. But then, you know, it reminds me of like when I was in high school, we had shop class and there were old Camaros and Mustangs in the shop and you would learn how to rebuild cars and fix a carburetor and, you know, replace a gasket and things like that. But it would be as if you took shop one day and then as you're growing up, the legislature uh, passes a law that says, well, the carburetors now are going to go in the trunk. And then passes another law that says, oh, all your gaskets have to be shaped like this. And then passes another law that says that these cylinders have to, you know, from, you know, through years and years of transformation of the systems, you really kind of do have to be an expert to really understand everything that's going on on a ballot nowadays in terms of those mechanical pieces, how you register to vote, how you stay registered, how a ballot gets out to voters, how they get returned, what happens if there's a duplicate ballot. What happens if you have somebody in your household that passes away and you get mailed a ballot? Like 
all those things are, you know, even signing a ballot, putting postage on a ballot, things change so much in our system because there's so much, you know, improvement, but also by changing, you're creating a negative impact with the confusion. So we need to be really deliberative about when we make changes. Well, a little earlier, you mentioned Steve Garvey and the Senate race, and we just had a Berkeley poll, an IGS poll come out about the Senate race and other things. And I know you were watching that closely and uh, I'm wondering if you want to chime in and Rich, you know, what your thoughts are on that. What are there? Some like 30 candidates on there of which, you know, we've never heard of 27 of them. Yeah. I mean, the top lines on this Berkeley poll um, show uh, Congressman Adam Schiff at 21%, Katie Porter at 17% and former Dodger, Steve Garvey at 13%, Congresswoman Barbara Lee at 9%. Um, and uh, there are a couple of things looking at this poll that were really interesting. I think the number one thing for me that was really interesting was the Steve Garvey number. And the question obviously is, will Steve Garvey be in the top two? Because let's be honest, he's not going to win in a general election in California. No Republican is going to win in the general election in California. That's, I think, pretty much a given uh, so if Steve Garvey makes the runoff, it means that this Senate race has been decided in March. If Steve Garvey doesn't make, make the runoff, then the Senate race will be decided in November. Very different electorates. This has to impact how candidates spend. Um, it has to impact, you know, uh, you know, a lot of what we're going to see in the next 53 days or so before the, uh, primary and, in my reading of this, you have this situation where Steve Garvey right now is pulling in third place. He's getting about a third of the Republican voters. And I think that would probably consolidate as more Republican voters hear that he's the front running Republican. And so, but even if it's only a third, you have uh, about 30% of the Republican voters being undecided. And if you simply took those undecided voters and allocated them out to the remaining candidates, uh, the same percentages they're winning, that would push Steve Garvey up into second place. And the poll has 30% of the votes coming from Republicans. If Nikki Haley wins in New Hampshire, if this Republican race seems competitive going into the voting period in California, if California voters uh, here over and over and over in the media, Nikki Haley, you know, Trump, Nikki Haley, Trump, you could have a situation where Republicans become an even larger share of the overall electorate, again, amplifying the Steve Garvey numbers. And, you know, he could head up into the 20% range pretty easily uh, by the time we get to, uh, you know, election day. And that would not only close out the primary, uh, meaning that he makes the runoff and whoever wins top spot is going to be the next senator for the state. But he theoretically could come in first in the primary, a nonsensical kind of like just more of a trivia question in the future because he won't become senator, but he will um, have made an interesting mark in a race where a lot of the Democrats are splitting up the most of the vote. Well, I think in what you're talking about, too, it it illustrates why or one one reason why a lot of people are very get, do get so frustrated with the political system now because as you noted you practically have to be 
uh, a person whose livelihood depends on this, right? And and which of course everything you just said makes me think every ad buyer seller in California is they are by far the most interested people in this primary because it's going to determine the rest of their income for calendar year twenty twenty four. But um, you know it is so complex and it is so confusing. And those of us who've been around this for so long, we still have to call people like you, Paul. How does this actually work? Because it is absolutely. Maddening, and I I can't imagine people who are not immersed in this all day long. Uh, you know, like you you know, you gave the example of somebody opening up a ballot, and going, "Well, where's my guy?" Right? Well, yeah, because you don't. When, when did I get the memo that said this is what I had to do? It's it's such a confusing thing, and it really is an unfortunate thing given how easily these conspiracy theories get around the world. I mean, I think it was Winston Churchill, I believe, I think at least he gets credited with saying, you know, a lie gets around the globe before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. Yeah, That's the world we're living in right now, for sure. And these are the kinds of things that exacerbate that by a lot. So she yeah, and even like, simple. even talking about this, with the Senate race, a lot of Democrats aren't going to vote in this primary. I mean, I don't know why an average Democrat would be voting in this primary. The presidential race is decided. There's no presidential primary. You've got the Senate race, but like it looks like to most lay people, they're going to be like, well, I'll vote on that in the general election. It's going to be Katie Porter and Adam Schiff. Like who else? It's not going to be that Dodger guy. And so like they're going to wake up going into the summer and into the fall elections. They might be like, wait, the Senate race has been decided? Like maybe I should have voted in March. And uh, and then in their local races, their city, their their legislative and, and local congressional races, you might have what look like really competitive races, whether it's like, you know, here in this area in Sacramento for, you know, an assembly race or in this area for like a state Senate race where you think as a voter, Democratic voter, like I'll just vote in November when it matters. And then you find out that a Republican made it into the second spot because of this super elevated Republican turnout that we have in, in March. And as a result, your vote doesn't really matter as much in November because it's not a competitive race between two Democrats. It's a blowout race with a Democrat winning in huge numbers and a Republican just being kind of a, you know, also ran. Garvey somehow wins this primary because of exactly what you're talking about and then gets annihilated in the general the, the conspiracy folks are going to be hanging from the, the light poles on every street saying, how does he win the primary yeah, well. and get smoked in the general, right? They're not going to understand. It's going to be a it's going to be a mess. It's going to be it's almost like his career. You know, you come in as a Dodger hero to every young Angelino. I knew that growing up and you go out as a Padre. So, you know, it happens. <laughs> well, I look, my cousin. <laughs> I have a cousin who played in the Dodger chain back in the in the 70s. And I can remember going uh, to Giants Dodgers games being one of the and I'm a lifetime A's fan. Everyone that knows me knows that. But of course, since my cousin was playing with him at that time, I can remember going to a Giants Dodgers game uh, with with a Dodgers hat on the one and only time I think I've ever worn a Dodgers hat. And I'm I'm sorry for all my friends out there that are Dodger people. Uh, but uh um, Kevin Eckery in particular, if you're listening to this, I apologize. I know this killed, this hurts you to hear this, but, but, but Garvey was very gracious. He signed a program for me. He was, you know, he was Mr. Mr. Clean, Mr. America, you know, Hey kid, kind of a thing. And now here I am at this age going, 
And now, wait a minute, haven't you been retired for a long time? It's such an odd, it's a, it seems like, you know, he, he seems like he should be a lot older than me, than, than uh, you know, than, anyway, I shouldn't say anything ageist. Again, please save your cards and letters. I, I'm not saying anything ageist. I'm just reminiscing my, my one little brief moment with Steve Garvey millions of years ago, so. And if you have that today, you can probably put it on eBay and make a fortune. You know, I have I have that program in a box today somewhere in my garage. And I I have names like Doug Rao and Billy North, who was playing with them at that time. He'd come over from Oakland, et cetera. Many of Jeff Zahn. There are people there that that uh, longtime Angelino fans will say, as I'm saying these names, uh, of course, Bill Russell, Ron Say, guys like that, Steve Yeager, all signed that thing. And yes, I it's somewhere in my garage. Probably waterlogged by now, but well, I have to say, you know, as a lifelong comic book nerd, the first time I ever heard the word Steve Garvey was when he announced for election. Yeah, on the phone with me, you were like, "Who's this Steve?" <laughs> the yeah. um, we have my mom has a uh, Fernando Valenzuela signed baseball. Um, and as a kid growing up, my mom was from England, and so like for her, being American and being a baseball fan were kind of synonymous. And so as a kid growing up, we would have the Dodgers game on the TV in the living room and then the sound playing throughout the house on the radio with Vince Scully on the radio and then the TV showing the actual game. So big Dodger fan, big, you know, Ron say Davy Lopes, you know, so really quickly as we close this up, uh, <laughs> keep talking about baseball. Yeah. Well, and I do, I do have a question. Uh, the uh, the IGS Berkeley poll, I didn't dig into it too hard. Did they talk about the the race to replace um, Barbara Lee. It's oh, no, they didn't. Yeah, okay. they didn't focus on any of the actual congressional races. But yeah, there is a uh, Barbara Lee, uh, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter are all uh, vacating or giving up their not running for re-election in those congressional seats. And they are interesting uh, congressional seats. But the most competitive are the Schiff seat uh, with a wild Democratic primary and then the uh, Porter seat with Scott Baugh, former state legislator on the Republican side, and uh, Dave Min uh, and Joanna Weiss on the Democratic side running. So those are the actually more competitive. The The seat, the Barbara Lee replacement seat is uh, not as competitive as the race. Got it. And that's, I think, Latifah Simon is the yeah. person that seems to be at the head of that race. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Paul, as always, thank you so much for coming on and, and uh, enlightening us uh, about all of this. This is, uh, to me, it's fascinating stuff. I don't think you need, even need to be a uh, political junkie to be fascinated by how um, interesting our voting processes are here in California. And it's uh, yeah. certainly all. And now, now that I guess, you know, Kevin McCarthy waited right up to the last minute, but he, he resigned in time to, to require special elections and, I'm sure you yeah. saw the story I did earlier. Waste of money, a waste of money. I just it, it, I, well, it's a, a gigantic amount of money too. Because I'm, yeah. I don't know if you saw the story that I did talking to the registrars of, about how much it's going to cost each of the four counties that make up that district, and it is a significant amount of money at a time when you know that's a problem. So it's uh, anyway, that's a story for another day. Thank yes. you so much for for coming on the show today, Paul. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. See you, Paul. See you. Well, thanks again, Paul. And now it is time for uh, who had the worst week in California politics.
the worst week. Worst week. Worst week. And this week we have a couple of options, uh, Tim. Um, we'll, we'll let's go with one uh, A and then one because I'll 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 say um, if you're paying attention to Bay Area politics, because both of our our candidates this week come from the Bay Area. Um, certainly at the local level, I think somebody who's not having a good week, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his name right. I believe I would be uh, Rigel Robinson, who was on the Berkeley City Council. Uh, he was elected at age 22, the youngest person ever to be elected uh, to the Berkeley City Council. And now here he is five years later at age 27. Looked like he had a really good shot at becoming mayor. He even got an endorsement from Attorney General Rob Bonta. And then this week he said, nope, he's done. He's retiring from politics. He's ending his campaign. And specifically because he's burned out and cited the toxicity around campaigning and around politics in general, uh, harassment, felt he was uh, endangered, felt uh, fear for the safety of uh, himself and his family. And uh, some of the things that uh, he says were said to him are pretty awful. So I could see why he'd probably feel that way. So, yeah, so he's decided to call it a career. Um, pretty, pretty shocking for somebody who seemed like he was really on a uh, upward trajectory, wouldn't you say, Tim? Yeah, it's really sad. And I mean, this guy seemed like he was a good public official from everything I've read about him. I, I don't know him. I've never met him and I'm not that familiar with his career, but uh, following it from afar, it seemed that he was well-respected, was representing his constituents, was a compelling candidate for mayor. You know, I don't know whether he would have won that race, but he was certainly uh, getting a lot of endorsements. And I also understand why he would step down. I mean, just seeing locally, I mean, someone trashed Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg's house and we're outside chanting his children's names. Uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff where you just say, why would I do this? I can go make a lot more money doing something else without having a bunch of psychopaths thinking it, this is appropriate. Yeah, it, it really is a testament to how ugly things have gotten. And um, hopefully, hopefully we'll return to sanity sometime in our lifetimes anyway, Tim. Uh, we'll see. But um, we'll move on to, to I think, who we would agree is uh, has uh, got the top spot this week in our Who Had the Worst Week in California Politics. And and this one pains us a little bit. I know both of us, because she's been the top person before. Um, but it, And it's painful because she also has been by, you know, and again, the, the party aside, I think most people would agree that Barbara Lee has been a very dedicated public servant uh, here in Northern California for a very long time. Um but this entire campaign to replace Diane Feinstein has just been a series of um, downturns for her. Uh, a new poll came out this week that showed that she's not really doing very well. I mean, she's not leading. She's not second. And really, in what most people have seen as a three-way race, now she's, at least according to this poll by the UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies, not even in third place. She is actually trailing the, the leading Republican in the race, uh, former Dodger Steve Garvey. If, if you were listening, if you've been listening to the show today, you heard us talking about Steve Garvey and the the possibilities that he has to to be a little bit of a of a player in this race, uh, and that which is all fine and dandy, good for him. 
but man, that has to be just a bitter pill to swallow for Barbara Lee because she just cannot get any traction. And to be trailing two very prominent fellow Dems is one thing, but to be trailing uh, a Republican in this state, boy, that really, that does have to be a, a terrible blow. Yeah, and as Paul talked about, uh, this is all about the top two. Uh, if two Democrats make it into this race, then we'll be seeing who the final winner is in November. If a Democrat and a Republican make it into this race, it is very unlikely in California that a Republican will be elected to the Senate. It is, I mean, it's conceivable, but, you know, it, it is possible, but it is not likely. And if Barbara Lee does not make that runoff, uh, she's out of that race. Uh, this is also not great news for Katie Porter, uh, because if, as Paul notes, uh, if Garvey can consolidate the Republican vote, he'll probably end up in the second spot, maybe even the first spot. Uh, and if Porter doesn't pick up some more Democratic support, uh, she could be in trouble. So but for Barbara Lee, who had a long and storied career, is very well respected. Uh, honestly, when she announced, I thought that she would be doing much better on this just because of her name ID. But I guess that really says that I'm old because I, I don't know that her name ID is as good with younger voters. I mean, I'm just speculating there, but that would be a guess for me because for me as an older voter who's been Demo the largely Democratic voter for the last 30 years, she is a very well-known figure. And I, I'm not sure that that's the case for younger voters. Well, I mean, I, th I think certainly within her, her district, she's you know, damn near legendary, uh, you know, it just shows the difference of, you know, trying to get statewide traction uh, and then, you know, national traction later on, if that's your if that's your goal, is just really, really challenging. Uh, that's why it's called running for office, right? You, you, you really do have to have a long-term plan, if that's what your goal is, to, to build up a constituency that goes well beyond your your district or what have you. And, um, you know, like I say, I, I think everyone would agree. She's been a pretty effective lawmaker, but yeah. Uh, so hopefully, you know, hopefully sometime soon she'll get some good news. Cause I do feel bad. You know, again, we've picked on Kevin McCarthy a little bit here too, but she, it seems like Kevin McCarthy and Barbara Lee have both been uh, one or two uh, in our, in our worst week a lot in over the last six, seven months. And uh, it'd be nice if, not that I'm advocating for anyone else to have bad weeks. It's just, it just, it'd be nice if it wasn't always them. So, you know, I'm, I'm wishing something good comes to Barbara Lee sometime soon because she doesn't deserve to always have so many bad things yep. going bad. Speaking of maybe Kevin McCarthy got out of jury duty, you know, we're not sure. I have not followed up on that story. Speaking <laughs> of good news, maybe, maybe he didn't actually have to go to jury duty. All right, Rich. Well, this was uh, an interesting chat and uh, I, I encourage our listeners to go find Paul's story on the Capital Weekly website. It's, uh, it's going to be either the top story or one of the top stories, depending on when you go there. But uh, yeah, it's interesting look at the way the Latino and Asian voters are kind of differentiating themselves. And while you're doing things like that, um, you can please give us a nice five stars on our whatever <laughs> podcaster you're using. Give us a nice review help other people find the show, help other people uh, discover, you know, the wonder that is the Capital Weekly Podcast. 
And, uh, you know, we'd love to, we'd love to hear any feedback too. And, you know, I guess I'd love to hear feedback, but, uh, but please yeah, do us a solid, all kidding aside, do us a solid, leave a nice review, leave a nice five stars. That'd be great. We'd really appreciate that until then. Right. Until next time then. Yeah. All right. See you, Tim. See you, Rich. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.